Good morning. How are you guys? My name is Leslie, and I'm on staff here at the Mill. And today, we, for our year of 52 stories, it is my pleasure to introduce a dear friend, Miss Sue Hightree. Can you give her a warm welcome? Good morning. Growing up, both my husband and I were raised in the Catholic Church. We married young, and we were blessed with two daughters who we treasured with all our hearts. Through our younger years and early years of marriage, there were a lot of parties and drinking that pulled us um, from our faith. It wasn't until the spring of 2002 that our marriage and what faith we had almost collapsed. Our oldest daughter, Ashley, was diagnosed with ovarian cancer at age 16. The next five months were a nightmare. We had no one to turn to, didn't know how to deal with the pain or fear of this, or even how to comfort each other. We lost her that September. Mike, our daughter Sarah, and I fell apart. The pain of losing her was almost unbearable for all of us. We had separated. I had turned to people who encouraged me down the path of drinking and further separation. It wasn't until months later that we came to our senses to stay married, work through this, and be there for our daughter, Sarah. A number of years had gone by, pardon my shake, <laughs> and I was still very angry at God. I would question God, why my daughter was taken from me, what I did to deserve this. I had so much heartache. Then a few years ago, Mike and I were invited to a friend's daughter's wedding. We met Pastor Zach and were invited to this church. I remember the first service we came to, the warm welcome, the inviting feeling. And at that service, during one of the songs, I felt I was given a gift. Besides feeling God's love, I felt the presence of my daughter. It was around me so comforting and loving I felt my faith renewed. Mike and I and Sarah still have our ups and downs, but our marriages and life are on more solid ground. God has given me a beautiful gift and strong faith. It's a gift that I share this story and God's love. I truly believe with God all things are possible. Thank you for letting me share this story. Thank you, Sue. Okay, well this morning we have our beautiful guest speaker, Mr. Dean, Pastor Dean Anderson. We were blessed to have him join us last week, last Sunday, as we're in this transition. And um, Dean is just a wonderful pastor. He is retired, who has enjoyed 50 years of ministry. He and his wife, Lita, are still active in their former church, loving on people whenever they can. So if you can give Dean a warm welcome this morning. Great to be with you today. When Zach asked uh, me if I would come for a couple of weeks and fill in between the time that they left and your new pastor uh, came, I jumped at the opportunity to come back 
and uh, to see this church family again, to see what God has been doing and to sense what God is, is still going to do in the future. You know, we all know that uh, next weekend you begin a new chapter in your church life. As Les, uh, Eric and, and Leslie Jackson begin their role as uh, shepherds of this body of believers. You know, it's no secret that um, uh, transition times tend to stretch us a bit. You know, we, uh, we balk at change. That We all do that to some degree. But whether we like it or not, change is a part of life, even church life. And, the, you know, we, we said last week, you know, the only thing that doesn't change is God himself. Everything else changes around us. Now, you, you have been uh, wonderfully blessed to have enjoyed a great pastoral team with Eric, Eric with uh, Zach and Shannon, Burris, and uh, God enabled them to just to, to uh, help create a wonderful foundation for this church family uh, of which each of you are a part, an integral part. You know, God in his infinite wisdom uh, knew that at some point in time, Mill Church in Stratford, Wisconsin would need a, a new shepherd. God knew that. That didn't take him by surprise. You know, it didn't throw him off course. Uh, and I, I've been through a few of these transitions, and uh, I know what it's like. So I have a couple of suggestions for you this morning. And uh, uh, they only gave me so much time to speak, and, and they really shouldn't count this against my time. But uh, that's all right. Um, first of all, let me just encourage you, be, be thankful for the, the, the great leadership that you have enjoyed. That's been a wonderful blessing for you, uh, to sit under their leadership, to know that God has brought you this far, not to let you down or to disappoint you. Uh, he has great plans for this church family, and new leadership will help lead into those plans for tomorrow. And secondly, I, do your best, and I know this is, this is challenging, but do your best not to get into the comparison game. Um, you know, God didn't create Eric to be a clone of Zach. They are two different men. They're two different leaders, uh, two different styles. They have different skill sets, different strengths, different weaknesses, uh, and let me just encourage you to, to, as much as you can, don't compare them. Just learn to enjoy Eric and Leslie for who they are. Uh, get to know them. Give them an opportunity to get to know you. Remember, for them, uh, this is just as daunting as it is for you. You know, they're coming in trying to figure out all your names, who you are, what this church family is all about, what the community's like. Uh, that's a daunting experience. I've, I've been there. I know that. So uh, understand that. <clears throat> and, and let them lead. Let them lead. 
You know, uh, someone said the seven, the seven words that will destroy any church are these. We've never done it that way before. You can put the emphasis on any words in that sentence and it all comes out the same. It's all negative. We've never done it that way before. Ask God for an open heart, an open mind, an open spirit to see what it is that God is wanting to do. And then finally, I would just say, uh, be gracious in your treatment of your new leaders. Love them, respect them, treat them with kindness, and you'll discover that God knew what he was doing in this whole transition process, in orchestrating this transition. You know, I believe, and I know, I know Zach and Shannon believe this too with all their hearts, that the greatest days of this church are still ahead. You've seen great things happen. Great things have been accomplished. You are, you are uh, examples of that. Uh, but God's not finished. You know, the greatest days of this church are still ahead as you seek to do what God wants you to do and to be in this community. So I would just encourage you, you know, jump into this transition with gusto. Uh, just enjoy the process. See what God has in store. And uh, I suspect you may well be delighted with what takes place. So God bless you in all of that. Now, that's my introductory message. So now you can start timing me, all right? Uh, here's the real message. Um, during a uh, British conference on comparative religions, experts from around the world had gathered to debate whether there was any one particular belief that was unique to the Christian faith. And they began eliminating possibilities. You know, what about the incarnation, uh, where God became man? Well, other religions had different versions or stories of God's appearing in human form. They said, well, what about the, the resurrection? You know, and again, other religions had stories of a return from death. And the debate was, had gone on for some time until C.S. Lewis happened to walk into the room. Some of you, you know C.S. Lewis is. You read some of his stuff. He walked into the room and he asked, what's the discussion about? And when he was told that they were debating Christianity's unique contribution among world religions, Lewis responded in his own forthright manner. He said, oh, that's easy. It's grace. It's grace. And after some discussion, the debaters had to agree. The idea of God's love coming to us free of charge no strings attached, seems to go against every instinct of humanity. The Buddhist eightfold path, the Hindu doctrine of karma, the Islam code of law, the Jewish covenant, of these, all of these offer a way to earn approval. Only Christianity dares to make God's love unconditional. That's grace. 
at its very finest, and it is, it is ours for the accepting. My good friend tells the story of, of uh, he tells it on himself. He was growing up, they grew up in church, and at the time his family was attending a rather small church, and they didn't have things for kids, so all the kids were uh, in, the, in the auditorium with mom and dad, and, and one day as a very, very little boy, he, my friend got a bit twitchy in the service and started uh, fooling around a little bit, and he disregarded the warnings of his parents, and uh, finally his parents had had enough, and his dad picked him up and started walking back down the aisle towards the back door. And my friend said he knew he was in big trouble when it was dad who picked him up and headed for the door. And recognizing the gravity of the situation uh, that he was in, just before he got to the back door, this little boy turned to the congregation and said very loudly, people, pray for me. He, uh, he knew that he was about to get justice and recognized that grace would be a better option for him. You know, last week we talked about God's unchanging nature, his unchanging character. We used that word immutability. He doesn't change. Today I want to talk about another of, of God's attributes, and it, this may be, you know, I don't know if you can categorize them or classify them, that probably doesn't work with God, but to me, this is one of the, 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 the greatest attributes of God, and that is his grace. He is a gracious God. Psalm 86, verse 15 declares, you, O Lord, are a compassionate and gracious God. Isaiah 30 verse 18 says, the Lord longs to be gracious to you. He rises to show you compassion for the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all who wait for him. But what really is the grace of God? You know, the dictionary definition is the unmerited favor and love of God to man. In other words, it's it's favor that you and I have neither deserved nor earned, and yet it is given to us. You know, when I was in college um, a few years ago now, and uh, living in the dorms, um, there was we had a curfew. Uh, this is a Christian college. You know, I don't know that colleges today have curfews, but we had a curfew, and we were expected to be in at a certain time uh, at at night. Uh, and if you missed curfew some evening, the administration gave you a supply of what was called grace time. And uh, this time was not something that you earned. It was just uh, undeserved favor. Uh, basically what they said is, I don't even remember now what it was, but they'll say like, we'll give you, you know, 120 minutes of grace time. And if you come in 20 minutes late sometime, instead of being punished for that, you know, you can use these 20 minutes of your 120 minutes of grace time, and uh, you will not suffer the punishment that you rightfully deserve. That's why they call it grace time. Now, 
Inter I never used any of that, of course, but you know, <laughs> others did. Interestingly, we live in a culture that is pretty much predicated on performance. As kids, we're taught that if you want something, you have to earn it. Now, I know that the, uh, you know, recent years, kind of the idea is, you know, every kid gets a trophy, you know, no matter what. But uh, I think we're discovering that doesn't work all that well because uh, culture around us uh, says differently. You know, we're taught that if we want something, you go out and you earn it. Go earn it. You know, as adults, we know that if we want a sales award, we got to go out and sell. If we want a promotion, we're, you know, we're pretty well convinced that we have to put in some extra hours, some longer hours. But when we carry that over into our spiritual lives, we can spend much of our time trying to please God by doing good things by being a good person, assuming that the same principle works in spiritual things as it does in the rest of our lives. The problem with that is that at some point, we start, we start wondering, you know, what's the quota for good deeds? How, how good is good enough? How do I know if I'm winning or losing? How do I know if I'm pleasing God by what I'm doing? And then when I find myself committing a clear-cut sin, you know, one of those right out of the Ten Commandments, I assume, okay, now that takes me all the way back to square one and I start all over again in this process. And over time, the realization begins to dawn on me, you know what, I... I'll, I'll probably never be good enough. I'll never attain. And that thought is driven home when you open the scriptures and you read in the book of Isaiah, it says that even my most righteous acts amount to nothing more than a pile of dirty rags. Even my best falls pitifully short. And if that's where you, you may maybe find yourself, if you're trying to your best to climb this spiritual performance ladder, I got good news and bad news for you. The bad news is that the ladder will never reach to God. It'll never get there. No matter how much you do, how hard you try, it'll never reach. However, the good news is that the God that you are longing for is a gracious God. And his greatest desire is for you to have a relationship with him. And so he is intent on making that happen. Psalm 103, verse 8 says, The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. That verse is a great picture of God. But that's not how we often see God. And that is mainly due to our misunderstanding of God's nature. You know, it's important that, that uh, we understand the relationship of justice and mercy and grace. 
in order that we might have a better understanding of God's true nature. Now, let me, let me illustrate this for us to help us get a hold of this truth. Suppose that you go home this afternoon and you see your 14-year-old neighbor boy get in the family car on the driver's side, and you know he doesn't have a license. And that concerns you. He has borrowed the family car without permission, and he's backing out of the driveway in a, in a hurried and careless fashion, and you watch and you listen as the tires squeal and the car lurches you know, uh, forward, and the boy's head is barely visible over the steering wheel. The car's all over the road, and all of a sudden it jerks to the right and plows through your mailbox, your bushes, and your fence that you just built last summer. And as the cloud of dust settles, you see this boy step out of the car with a sheepish look on his face. And at that moment, you have a decision to make. You have three choices. Your first choice is to treat him with justice. You can give him exactly what he deserves. You can say to him, all right, kid, you messed up. So I'm going to call the police, and they will cite you for driving without a license. After that, I'm going to call your parents and tell them what happened. And then you're going to go out and get a job and pay for this mailbox and these bushes and this fence. Now, if you treat the kid with justice, you're not a bad person. You're giving him exactly what he deserves. Nothing more, nothing less. That's justice. However, you might choose a second option. You might treat him with mercy. Mercy is giving somebody a little bit less than they deserve. So you say, all right, listen, kid, I'm not going to call the police. I don't want to get you in trouble with the law. I'm going to call your parents, and we're going to establish what the mailbox, what the bushes, what the fence costs, and you will need to pay for it. Now, if you do that, the kid ought to be thankful because instead of applying strict justice, you are choosing to be merciful. He's getting less punishment than he deserves. But it's possible that you might choose the third option. And this option doesn't align itself with common sense. It's risky. It could blow up in your face. And some would even call it scandalous. You might choose to treat this kid with grace. So you say to him, you know, you messed up, kid. 
You mowed down my mailbox. You ruined my bushes. You flattened my fence. Took me half the summer to build that fence. But I'm not going to call the police. And I'm not sure that I, that I even want to get you in a whole lot of trouble with your family. As for the mailbox, the bushes, the fence, you know, I, I can fix those. But how about if you and I get in my car and we find a place where we can sit down and have a hamburger together? And I can find out a little bit more about who you are and what's going on in your life and what, what the future might hold for you. Now, what's your reaction to that last choice? Some of you think, that sounds pretty good. Some of you think that's about the most stupid thing I ever heard because that kid's just going to go out again, take the car, and he's going to run over somebody else's fence, bushes, and mailbox, just like he did with mine. And you know what? He might. He might. That's the risk and scandal of grace. But it's also possible that your act of grace will touch that young boy at the deepest part of his soul. Your interest in his welfare and future might unlock potential in him and you might witness the transformation of a life changed by grace. I read about a church in Missoula, Montana that was very badly vandalized by three older teenage boys. And the church family collected what they called love baskets full of electronic games and gift cards, Xboxes, DVDs to give to the boys who had vandalized the church. And the pastor of the church said, when he was asked about this, he said, you know, a lot of us, whether we are churchgoers or not, have been in their shoes before and we have made some bad choices. But God forgives us. He said the judge will give them consequences. But as a congregation, we want to reach out and extend love and mercy to them. And I would add a lot of grace. Now, you may or may not agree with that particular church's approach. Truth be known, this whole subject of grace doesn't really grab a hold of us until we fully realize how undeserving we are of God's grace and the incredible gift that it is. Romans 3.23 reminds us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. How many of us does that include in the room today? Every one of us. We've all sinned. 
And then Romans 6.23 comes along and says, the wages of sin is death. So when we commit sin against God, you know, whether it's lying or cheating or stealing or profaning God's name, you name it, we deserve death. If we were to get straight justice from God, we'd be obliterated on the spot, wouldn't we? Because every one of us has sinned. The consequences or the, the wages of sin is death. We'd all, we'd all be gone. Every one of us. And God wouldn't be mean and nasty when he annihilated us. He would be just. We couldn't shake our fist at him, you know, and say, we don't deserve this. Because we do. But what if we were to, to receive mercy? Psalm 103, verse 10 says, he, speaking of God, he does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquity. We, ought to, we all ought to keep that verse right handy that we see it a lot. He doesn't treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities because God is merciful. There is not, you know, because he's merciful, there's not this one-to-one -one correspondence between our sinning and dying on the spot because God's merciful nature leads him to give us less than the full punishment we deserve. But then comes grace. And grace is this outrageous blessing lavished freely on a totally undeserving recipient. It's scandalous. It's too good to be true. And yet it is. You know, there's a great illustration of this grace in a story that Jesus told in Luke 15, a story that most all of you here are very familiar with, the story of the prodigal son. And this, this wayward son took his father's inheritance and he blew it. He did every self-destructive and God-dishonoring thing a young, rebellious man with pockets full of money could do. And when his depraved lifestyle and foolish choices led him so low that the food he was feeding to the pigs started to look good. He thought to himself, you know, this is justice. I'm dying in a pen full of pigs. But this is what I deserve. I wanted my dad's inheritance money that he gained through decades of hard work and right living. I violated everything I was taught. I shook my fist at God and his ways, and now I've trashed my life. If I die like this, it's not an unfair deal. I'm getting what I deserve, justice. But even in that pigsty, This young man dared to imagine mercy. Not because his sins had become less sinful. 
but because he had a little bit of understanding of his father's love. Grace never entered his mind. But he had just enough faith to envision the possibility that his dad loved him enough that he might be merciful. And so he told himself, he said, this is what I'll do. I'll go back home. And the first thing I'll say to my dad is, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. I'm only going to ask for a bed out with the rest of the guys in the bunkhouse and a little bit of food, and I'll work for it. But never in his wildest dreams did he imagine how his father would respond. This delinquent son got a huge love blessing that was completely out of line. The embrace of his father. In fact, his father came running to him. The embrace of his father. The ring on his finger. Shoes on his feet. A celebration with his friends and family. The feast of his life. It was scandalous. This son was blitzed by grace. And until you and I experience this incredible gift, we will never really understand grace. You have no idea. I have no idea of the power of grace, of the cost of grace. Remember, God didn't, God didn't just wink at sin. Jesus his son paid the price to satisfy God's justice requirements. And because of that, God can offer the gift of forgiveness and salvation and grace and say to each one of us, here it is. You can have it. Just if you take it, it's yours. So if grace is so great, why doesn't everybody hop on the bandwagon? Why doesn't everybody pursue this wonderful thing called grace? You know, for many people, there is this suspicion that it's just too good to be true. If somebody tells you, you know, Somebody here in church told you today, you know, if you just show up at a certain uh, parking lot here in town at 3 o'clock today, you'll get a, a free car. You wouldn't believe it. I wouldn't believe it. So how can we expect a free ticket to heaven? This grace business just, it sounds too good. It sounds too easy. But that's precisely why when you open your life up to Christ and you experience the grace explosion in your life, your life will be flooded with relief. You know, in the back of your mind, you knew you couldn't earn heaven. You couldn't, you couldn't work your way there and then you re now you realize, I don't have to. God doesn't ask that of me. 
Instead of defining your relationship with God by your own efforts, you watch in amazement as God draws close to you on his own accord. And hope will rise in your soul. And you start thinking, you know what? Maybe with God's help, I can, I can start my life again. All over again. Maybe I can walk with a clean slate into a different kind of future. And truth be known, there is no maybe about it. That's grace. The amazing thing about God's grace is that it's not for just a select few. Anyone, anyone can experience his grace. It's a wonderful gift, not only to be celebrated, but to be experienced. So what do we do with this grace? How should we respond to it? I was reminded of an incident that, that happened uh, uh, some time ago now, and maybe the same thing has happened to you. My family and I were, were sitting in a restaurant, enjoying a nice meal together. And when we finished, uh, we asked the waitress for the bill. And the waitress said that it had already been taken care of. Now, I have to tell you, that's, that's, a, that's kind of an awkward moment. You know, how do, how do you respond to that act of grace? You know, the natural inclination is to kind of start looking around to see, you know, who, who might have done this for us? Who, who likes us well enough to shower that kind of grace on us? But I'll tell you how you don't respond to grace. You don't get up and start marching around the restaurant and asking every single person, did you do this, did you do this, did you do this? Nor do you argue with the waitress and say, well, listen, I need, I have to pay this bill. What do you do? You just accept that gift of grace and go on your way with a thankful heart. Some of you may be confronted with God's grace this morning. And how are you going to choose to respond to it? It's God's gift to you, but he doesn't force it on us. God never forces his grace. He offers it to us as a gift. Will we choose to accept it? Let's bow our hearts in prayer. Heavenly Father, how do we begin to express our thanks to you for your wonderful gift of grace? Lord, will you help us to simply learn to accept that wonderful gift in our lives? To enjoy the freedom that comes from living in your grace. Lord, if there are those here today who have, been, who have been working so hard to try to earn your favor, to earn your approval, Lord, would you help them today to just stop 
and to say yes to your gift of grace and to learn the joy of living in that freedom. To know what it is to be set free from feeling like we have to earn our way to you. We can't do it, but your grace makes that possible for us. So Lord, we simply accept your grace into our lives and we begin to live in that wonderful freedom today. Lord, help us to enjoy our lives in your grace. And on this Memorial Day weekend, Lord, we were reminded of those who have given of themselves their lives that we might enjoy the freedom that we have today to worship God as we have. We thank you for those men and women, Lord, who did that. And we enjoy the benefits of their sacrifice today. Lord, help us never to take this freedom for granted, but to be grateful and to pray often for this nation, Lord. We desperately need your help. We need your grace in all of our lives. And Lord, I... I pray a special blessing on this wonderful congregation as they begin a new chapter this next week. Lord, I, I thank you for what you have enabled them to accomplish for your kingdom, for the impact that they have had in this community and surrounding communities, for the lives that have been changed, Lord, we're grateful for that. We thank you for the faithfulness of this congregation to do what you've called them to do. And I thank you, Lord, for the, the faithful way that they have learned to give, to provide a, a delightful and functional building like this as a beacon of light in this community to be a place that's known where you can find the answers to your life. You can experience the grace of God. So Lord, I pray today now that you'll take our gifts, our tithes, our offerings, and multiply them for your use, for your kingdom, for your kingdom's glory. We pray these things now in the wonderful name of Jesus.